to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. And then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him, and then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So I did something this past week that I fairly religiously try to avoid doing. I mean, I've been, I've had this conversation with myself and said, you know, you shouldn't do this. But, of course, I didn't listen. So, <clears throat> in preparation for an interview that I, that I did on Wednesday, I reread a couple of Huffington Post articles that I'd written some time back. But I still really liked the articles, but then I started remembering all the wonderfully colorful and insightful things people had written about me in the comments. Pro tip, don't read the comment threads. Now, <clears throat> usually I, I, I try to abide by the anonymous wisdom that what others think of me is really none of my business. I'm not owed access to everyone's thoughts about me. In fact, it's really murderously painful when you find out sometimes what other people think about you, isn't it? But every once in a while, curious, I dip into that manifestation of the human id that seething cauldron of unfettered opinion that makes up most comment threads. And thinking about all those things that people felt compelled to share with me online over the years, the one common theme that emerged shouldn't surprise you, though. There were folks excited to point out to me just how much I have no idea what I'm talking about. 
I know, it's shocking to me too. <laughs> so they write these hateful things, I think, with the belief that it will come as a newsflash to me somehow. <laughs> right? And I want to respond, look, I've been called an idiot by a better class of people than you, so don't be smug. Now, what, you may wonder, do my critics believe I remain so criminally clueless about? It's a range of things. Christianity, for example. The church, Jesus, the existence of God. I don't know anything about any of them. My detractors are quick to point out that they're just fine, thank you very much, without me trying to pawn off my version of Jesus. Now, most of my loyal critics are convinced that I'm a sort of liberal huckster whose main purpose in life is to ruin the church and blaspheme God. What the world needs, according to these over-enthusiastic sunbeams, is more Franklin Graham and less of me. But interestingly enough, there's a whole other section of critics on the other end of the spectrum who think that the whole religion thing and the church in particular, is kind of a mess. And that my attempts to pretty it up a little are in no way persuasive to them. What the world needs, these culture despisers believe, isn't more and better Christians, but more and better people who know how to shut up about their faith. Christianity is dead, they say. Well, I'm not... Sure, Christianity is, in fact, dead. I mean, that would be a terrible blow to my vocational aspirations. But it certainly is an increasingly odd and seemingly irrelevant enterprise to which one might commit oneself, isn't it? I mean, if I'm not entirely tone deaf, I can say with some certainty that Christianity centered on the actual Jesus found in the Gospels isn't something that most of the cool kids are doing right now. But whatever the case, it's tempting to see our lives as though our faith is just sort of one more box to check on the census form and that what happens here on Sunday mornings is really not that important. And it's, it's easy to think that the world that we return to when we leave this place is pretty much the same when we left. Tempting to believe that nothing of real significance happens while we're here together. The extent to which Christianity does provide a presence in the world worth remarking on, it is for the most part pretty negative. And a lot of judgmental, ignorant hypocrites, right? You've heard this before? I mean, that's kind of the rap on Christianity among many people. And Lord knows, I mean, Christianity has too often earned the scorn reserved for it. You don't have to see too many pastors pleading for private jets, too many preachers preaching hate against LGBTQ folks, too many Christian politicians trying to whip up fear and legislate exclusion against people they deem not American enough to understand that the church really has too often deserved this reputation. And when it's not offensive, the church just sort of feels kind of largely irrelevant. I mean, the real juice is in Washington, D.C., or 
Hollywood or Wall Street, Madison Avenue. The stuff that makes the world go round happens outside these four walls. I mean, you know, come on, it's, it's, it's only church, right? There's a lot of interesting stuff we could be doing on a Sunday morning. At least that seems to be the word out on the street. And people like us are kind of wasting our time. But what about us? When we read our gospel for this morning, does, does our society's sort of generally low opinion of the church influence how we read Jesus' ministry? I mean, think about our story today. As we pick it up in Luke, Jesus has just returned to Galilee from his cage match with Satan out in the wilderness. Having spent 40 days fasting and facing the caterwauling and wiles of the tempter, Jesus finally sort of returns to civilization filled with the power of the Spirit, is how our text begins. And upon arriving in Nazareth, his hometown, what's the first thing Luke has Jesus do? Where does Jesus go after facing down old scratch out in the wilderness? Well, Luke says he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Jesus, fresh from the three-round knockout in the desert, goes to church. But not only does Jesus head for the presence of God and the gathering of fellow believers, Luke tells us something significant by attaching a little throwaway line at the end of the verse. Luke tells us, as was his custom. In other words, Jesus knows a little something about showing up. Luke tells us that after arriving at the synagogue, he stood up to read. Now, it turns out that this is an apparently really kind of important passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, I mean, so what? I mean, he reads some dusty old scriptures. Who cares? What's the significance? Well, I mean, maybe it depends on the scripture. Any self-respecting Jew knows this is a special passage. When the text says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me, there's actually something really big going on. You know, the word for anointed, you know what it is both in Greek and Hebrew? Well, in Greek, the word for anointed is from the same root as the word Christ. And in Hebrew, it's from the same root word from which we get Messiah. In other words, Jesus' Jewish listeners would have heard something that would have sounded curiously like, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has made me the Messiah. Now, that's not something that you hear every time you settle into your pew, is it? 
But in Luke's hands, this, this anointing of the Spirit raises the issue of what is Messiahship? What's it supposed to look like? And the question that's posed by this particular passage is, what kind of a Messiah is Jesus going to be? Well, apparently a different kind, a radically different kind. In the new reign that Jesus proclaims, the poor will hear good news. The captives will be released, the blind will see, and those in bondage will be freed. And then the last part of the text announces something that sounds, I mean, nice, sort of rhetorically beautiful, but not really that important on the surface of things, anyway. Luke says the Messiah then proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. And it's easy to sort of wonder, it, I mean, isn't every year the year of the Lord's favor, like by definition? Well, yes. But he's talking about something other than God's general goodwill toward humanity and toward the rest of creation. This particular portion of Scripture says that the Messiah will announce the year of Jubilee. Do you remember the year of Jubilee, what this is all about? It's from Leviticus. Every 50th year, all the enslaved were supposed to be freed and then returned to their homes, their families, and all the land would be returned to its original owners, the land that had been foreclosed because of debts, that couldn't be repaid, all of it was supposed to be given back. No one was supposed to work in the fields, no plowing, no sowing, a whole year of Sabbath. Like everybody's student loan debt and visa bills would be canceled. The mortgages could be burned and that embarrassing thing with the IRS would just sort of disappear. I mean, the whole year was supposed to be this like, huge party. And according to Isaiah, the coming of the Messiah was supposed to usher in the year of Jubilee. All right, so just so we have this straight, Jesus comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom, stands up to read, and is given the Isaiah scroll, at which point he reads a well-known messianic text. And this is kind of shaping up to be a an interesting day down at Nazareth Synagogue on the corner of Main and Elm, right? But then, in the first words Jesus speaks as an adult in Luke's gospel, apart from reading scripture to the tempter out in the wilderness, he goes even further. He says, get this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wait, what? I can't begin to stress how dramatic this must have been. I mean, this is a huge orange inflatable buoy in the prophetic intercoastal waterways, right? An ingeniously imaginative way, Luke has Jesus walk in and tell everybody that they've won the lottery and He's paying cash. 
Jesus announces the impending death of this world and the birth of a new one. Just a few words. And Jesus proclaims to those assembled all that you've been waiting for, longing for all these years, the new age that you've kept your eyes peeled for is finally beginning today. And not some point way off in the sweet by and by, not after you walk toward the light and your eventual heavenly reward, not after you get everything figured out and straight and your life is just perfect the way you want it. No, all of it starts right now. I mean, you don't hear preaching like that every week. Well, at least I know you don't, but... I mean, don't kid yourself. Jesus knows about the kingdoms of this world. Because just a few verses back, out in the wilderness, the tempter have, has offered all of them to him. Remember? Said he could have authority over all the kingdoms of this world if he would just bow down. And Jesus said no. And today... In the synagogue, Jesus is establishing what he turned down out in the wilderness without any help from Satan. Do you see? Jesus tells the faithful assembled that the world as they've known it is coming to an end. The one over which the tempter has ruled, held dominion, and a new one is about to be created. In this passage in which Jesus takes on the mantle of Messiah, Luke has Jesus frame the whole purpose of his Messiahship. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me, which is to say because God has made me Messiah to do something, not just to get everyone else to believe something. I mean, here in his first words as a newly minted Messiah in Luke, Jesus announces that he's got a job, he's got a purpose. He's undertaking this divine vocation in order to accomplish some things. And the question, of course, is, well, yeah, but what things? Well, Jesus announces that his purpose as a Messiah is to usher in a world where the systems that keep poor people poor and rich people rich will be knocked to the ground and rebuilt with equity for all of God's children. A world in which the walls erected to keep the captive imprisoned and cut off from humanity, forgotten and rotting in cells, sometimes cells of their own making. They will all be destroyed and prisoners will be released into a world ready, finally, <clears throat> to embrace them rather than to warehouse them. A world in which the barriers that have been built to keep the blind dependent and helpless will be dismantled and the blind will be given sight that involves not so much the restoration of a sensory organ, but a world made accessible and therefore hospitable, where they're welcomed as participants and not ignored as nuisances. A world in which the oppressed, those without a voice, without a friend, without a prayer, will be freed from the hand of the powerful who keep them voiceless, friendless, and desperate. It's the year of the Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, and all bets are off. A new world is here. 
a new ruler is about to be crowned, and Jesus says that today is the enthronement procession. The inaugural parade begins now. Now, what I find interesting about this is to think about the context, the place in which Jesus announces this establishment of his new reign. Where does he go to do it? That's right, he goes to the house of God. I mean, he could have gone to the public square, could have shouted it from the steps of the state capitol, could have launched a campaign initiative with spin doctors and focus groups trying to get ahead of the curve, stay on message, could have led an armed insurrection down the streets of Jerusalem, which, coincidentally, is what the Jews were really expecting the Messiah to do anyway. But he didn't. He didn't do any of that. How did Jesus announce the death of the old world and the birth of the new one? How did Jesus unmask the powers and principalities of this present age and establish himself clearly on the throne of the next age? How did Jesus start his revolution? Well, he stood up in the synagogue and he preached. Just a few words, really, that's, that's it. Just a few words in the midst of the faithful, a few words, and old worlds crumble. Well, a new one spins in, out of the formless void. It's just a couple sentences strung together amidst the same old tired faces in God's presence, and the rulers of this world are dethroned. While a new sovereign gets up to, ready to occupy the palace. Again, it's so tempting to think, well, it's, I mean, it's only, it's only church, right? I mean, why do we folks in church, the, the culturally, culturally irrelevant, I mean, why do we have anything to really be excited about? Well, because Jesus has announced the coming of the year of the Lord's favor. And guess who gets to be part of making that a reality? Right, you and me, that's who. See, Jesus stood up in the company of a handful of the faithful and he said a few words. Words that suggest that the world is about to change. And if the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed are to get a taste of the year of the Lord's favor, it will be in large part because those who claim to follow Jesus aren't preoccupied either with being dismissed as hypocrites and dolts, or only in saving their own souls. It will require those who claim to take Jesus seriously to help create the space in which the reign of God may unfold. I mean, there will be people who continue to dismiss what we do in here, people who continue to believe that Christianity is dead, right? We'll We'll still hear it. But what I'm saying is don't believe it. 
Don't believe it. It may only be church, but when Jesus shows up, you better bolt down the pews because you just never know what might happen. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.